0: Okay, three-point range is back with an evening taping. I'm Mike Berardino, joined as always by the scout, Kimball Crosley, and the professor, Tim Crothers. But uh, I'm going to lead off this time because um, there's uh, another instance of uh, Tom Brady. We kind of have a rule at least every third show. We have to talk about Tom Brady. Well, in this <laughs> case, uh, Brady is just part of the show. But uh, really, the thing that's got me ticked off is the fact that um, this Byron Kennedy down in uh, Tampa has just committed a <laughs> terrible, terrible error. He's not the first, but you may have seen that Tom Brady threw a milestone, t- another milestone touchdown, this one the 600th career touchdown, and Mike Evans, his receiver, didn't know about that and handed the ball to an unsuspecting fan who happened to be wearing a Mike Evans jersey, and a fan named Byron Kennedy down there in Tampa on Sunday, initially wanted to keep the ball. And when a team representative came over to him and asked for the ball, his his first thing was, no, I've never gotten a ball. It's the coolest thing ever, was his quote. (laughs) And then the guy came back to him, the team representative, and he said, Tom Brady really wants the football. Now, think what you would do in this situation if you're just a regular person, as this Byron Kennedy apparently is. He's gotten some media attention since. Do you stand your ground and say, no, I'd like to keep the ball, if nothing else, for sentimental reasons? As it turned out, the ball is immediately valued at at least $500,000 on the open market, on this insanely hot memorabilia market where even my old baseball cards apparently have reclaimed some value. Well, Tom Brady football, milestone football, is meaningful and valuable. And this poor guy handed it back over for nothing except so far a game ball and a gift card. And so I did a little, this totally brought me back to 98 and McGuire, Sosa and all the talk about every one of those, so many valuable quote unquote valuable balls and anything in sports or anything else is only worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. It pains me. It pains me. Well, before I joined the gig economy to see somebody turn over a lottery ticket just a regular Joe, ticket buying customer, ticket paying customer, whatever, supporting the game, giving this ball back because Tom Brady wants another ball on his mantle. Let Tom Brady pay market value, is what I say. Let the Bucks pay market value. If indeed we agree that the ball is worth five hundred thousand dollars. And that was it could, apparently Brady's first ever touchdown recently sold for about four fifty. Jesus. If you just go by Bernie Sanders' talk, $15 being a, a living wage per hour, you'd have, this poor Byron Kennedy, I don't know what he does, he would have to work 33,333 hours to make back that $500,000. Byron Kennedy would have to work 833 40 hour weeks at $15 an hour. He'd have to work 16 solid years at 40 hours per week to make $500,000 back, they just hand it over because Tom Brady felt like having a little something extra on the mantle. Giselle would feel sad if he didn't have it. Tom Brady, in his career, has made $291 million estimated on the field. He's being paid $25 million this year, and I don't doubt for a second that he's underpaid. I'm not here to say Tom Brady's overpaid or anything like that. I'm just saying he's done quite well, and thats that doesn't even count the off-field stuff, the branding, the TB12 all that. His little chats with Jim Gray, all that. Do you know how little time it would take Tom Brady to make the five hundred thousand that he could then turn over to Byron Kennedy for to pay proper market value, as set by some auction house immediately? Well, it would just take. Considering he makes twenty five million a year, which breaks down to twenty four thousand five hundred nine dollars per minute of game action over 17 weeks, 17 game season, Tom Brady would only need to play 20 minutes and 24 seconds, 20 minutes and 24 seconds to pay (laughs) Byron Kennedy properly. And so far, Byron Kennedy, with a smile on his face, has gone on national television and talked about how so far he's gotten a game ball and a gift card and, quote, supposedly the Bucks are trying to do something nice for me, but I haven't talked to them yet, and this was Monday. They're going to stiff Byron Kennedy, and it makes me sick. So I have an idea, because we're all about ideas and innovation here. You know, teams insure themselves against injury all the time. Every team does it. They get very specific about it. They get not right down to the individual player and the individual body part. There's exceptions. There's this, there's that. It's a lot of fine print. Not to bring Affleck back into it. This is Lloyd's of London stuff. (laughs) Every team should carry milestone insurance so that the wealth can be redistributed properly to the people, the ticket-paying customers. There'd be great publicity. Whatever the team has to pay out in insurance premiums on this, they would certainly recoup in positive publicity that they did right by their paying customers, the people supporting the whole house of cards of modern sports. So I'd like to see that on the books. I'd like to see something worked out where uh, I guess some sort of committee would set the uh, a meet, you know, wouldn't couldn't game this system. But if, if the, these balls go for 500,000, fully inflated, properly inflated then I would say, let the man have his money. Byron Kennedy, you've blown it. And why is it that everybody praises a fan who does this sort of thing, who gives back the lottery ticket, but the crit- you get criticized if you want to hold on to the ball and let it play out? That's happened a few times in history. Wait until Todd McFarland wants to pay you $3 million for the ball. Why not hold the ticket? Why is it that society criticizes the fan who wants to cash in on this golden ticket that just falls out of the sky. I don't get it, and I'm really sad for Byron Kennedy and for the next joker who ends up with a lottery ticket at a sports event in his hand and is pressured to give it back to Tom.
1: I remember when I used to do research like this for three-point range, I was and I was <laughs> shamed by you all so much that I just stopped uh, but I, I do I do appreciate the fact that you you put all that that work into it. I uh, I, I my first reaction is is that uh, the the guy who should pay pay uh, the the tab is is really Mike Evans, isn't it? I mean, Mike Evans has a uh, has I guess a, a a habit of giving balls to fans after he catches. Catches uh, touchdown passes, and so he just did what he normally normally does, and I guess later realized his the mistake he really realized the mistake he'd made. Had no idea that this was a historic ball, and I guess gave it to your boy. What is it, Byron? You said Byron Kennedy. Byron. Uh, so um, so he's really the one responsible. If he if if somebody had just had just alerted Mike to the fact that the next touchdown pass that. That T B twelve through was gonna be worth five hundred thousand dollars and maybe he shouldn't hand it to to a fan. That would have solved this whole whole issue. So I, I put that on. Fair I enough. guess the PR PR staff or somebody, somebody's gotta be on top of top of that. Um, but then I, I guess my other my other feeling on this is is yes, is that we've we've really lost our minds to think that uh that Anyone would actually pay five hundred thousand dollars for a football? I just it just seems kind of stupid. I mean, it is it's a piece of leather uh, or pigskin or whatever it is, and uh, I, I'm you know it brings me to the other other story of the day, which along those same lines, which was I think it's almost a million and a half or something for for some old Michael Jordan shoes. Um, again, I mean, game worn, stanky. Uh, Michael Jordan shoes a, a million and a half uh, I, I guess it I mean it' it doesn't make any sense to me but I guess like capitalism the capitalist world we live in uh, if if that's the value that's assigned to it and if Byron had held on to it then yes byron Byron would have eventually been a rich man uh, and yes this idea that Mike Evans would do this you know do this this charitable thing and hand hand byron the ball and (laughs) before long they would send send a goon over there to get the ball back from byron um is is pretty sad and then the idea that i mean think about where this ball is going to end up honestly really this ball is going to end up in tom Tom brady's basement gathering dust is he really going to is he really going to look at this every day is he really going to appreciate this every day Certainly not the way Byron would appreciate it until he sold it, and uh, certainly not the way whoever then bought it would appreciate it. and probably put it up somewhere really special. I mean, how many frigging souvenir celebration balls does Tom Brady have? I mean, there's got to be dozens of them. And uh, what's one more? Does it really make any difference? Um, yeah, I... I I, I have a hard time, hard time getting behind any of any of how this went down. Um, I'm I'm clearly not as upset about it as you are, Mike. But I'm I'm trying to trying to to summon some rage about this. Um, but <laughs> I yeah, have enough for all one, of us.
0: I have enough I for all of us. I can see that.
1: I can see that. It's not manufactured. <laughs> yeah.
0: It drives me the, crazy, and okay. it drives yeah, I mean, Kimball it. crazy too.
2: No, I ahead, I Kim. I have I've several thoughts on this and none of them are uh driven by rage (laughs) i i wonder like you know that athlete that does have those milestone artifacts in his basement or displayed in his a chest in his living room and you go over to his house and says look at this one look at this one i was thinking that's kind of sad (laughs) i've never been in that case to interview that guy and say like okay great you know what are you doing now you know sit on your couch just looking at this stuff um but uh yeah, I wonder what happens if the wide receiver is going for a milestone too, and then you have to split the ball. But it all comes back to you shouldn't make a deal with the devil. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, I think Tom Brady's the de- devil, so you just don't want to mess with him. I, I think I would have just quickly handed it back to him and said, no, no, no. I, I want nothing to do with this. It could only turn out bad for me if I even make a, a minor deal with you. Well, and and that is the lesson, right? I mean, from, you know, maybe if greedy people, like Mike wants uh, this guy to be. Not greedy at all. Maybe it turns out to be like a, a, you know, a a negative for him some way Um, that, you know, sure he gets 500,000, but I will never, I'm with Tim. I just can't believe memorabilia even sells. And part of that is because (laughs) none of mine is ever
1: sold. Like, you know,
2: my baseball cards, you might be doing well, Mike, but mine are not worth crap. And I'm like, look at this box of these old cards. It's like, well, why is this not worth anything? And I know, I know Tim's son is a little bit of a dealer. He might have an opinion on this. He's got some
1: fifty, fifty, sixty dollar cards, but trouble is, he's not going to sell them. But uh, yeah, they're, they 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 definitely do have have some value. There's no doubt. But I've I've uh, tried
2: to push my cards. I my daughter have take the way and said you could have all the money. And we went through some people, and these were old cards. But then there's all these weird things about the year and the type. And I thought they looked pretty valuable. But I do have one. Piece of memorabilia that I guess if I should take Mike's you know lead, I should try and hawk right now. In fact, maybe top of the market, (laughs) Kimball. Top of the market. No, I uh, you know maybe it's wrong, but I was as a scout, I got to I was out in Arizona and and on the West Coast a lot for Barry Bonds, you know, amazing run, you know, uh, of home runs, and I I believe, and that's that's why I'm not even sure. I I have to look, but. I believe I was there in attendance when he hit like 7.15 or something, either either the day he tied Ruth or passed Ruth or something like that. And, and his one ticket, you know, you have these tickets, to these games, and I, I saved it. And I wish I, I know it's somewhere in this house. I don't know where I better find it <laughs> and make sure it's in mint condition. So when I do start talking and maybe I'll give Mike half the, the proceeds. No, I, I don't, I don't make, deserve I'll, it. That'll make him happy because I have no interest in, you know, Wherever, College whatever fun. dark, whatever dark, you know, hallways or or alleys, Mike is peddling these mem- his memorabilia. <laughs> I, I'll let eBay. him do that for me. Yeah. yeah, I'll let him do that for me, and and whatever. But I, I'm not in the whole memorabilia thing either.
1: Am I? Am I wrong that I saw some video from? I I assume it was after the same game, the game against the Bears on Sunday, where Tom Brady was getting a ton of credit. Yeah. For handing over his hat to a kid who has brain cancer or something yeah and, he, cured,
0: he cured the kid or something yeah
1: and right i think and i think to, i think to myself okay well you're you're happy to hand over a hat but but not that ball no you can't have the ball i'll give you my hat but no ah, no 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 I like no that. no I like no that. you can't what have a gesture that, ball. that
0: would have been for the young mm. chel- the young the young hero wow, wow. Yeah, what I if he given Donald Trump
2: what if, and said this would be good for 200 dollars in a couple of months if you want it, kid.
0: <laughs> Can you imagine he, the bills that family has run up as they fight cancer for that young child? So Tom Brady, that, that that's what a What if wonderful that kid point. had been
1: given the football? Would he have would he have taken the football back from that kid? <laughs> wow
0: for a no, gift card. Some some uh some 30-something uh Yahoo in a hoodie would have stolen it from the boy and run out of the stadium, probably. But um yeah, no, that's not that. any memorabilia, Mike. Have you hawked any? any? I, I've sold most of my bobbleheads. I have, I just because they oh, break. I have my Dan Marino bobblehead, that's not for sale.
2: What, what's the most you sold the bobblehead for?
0: I don't want to get into it, but people no, will tell pay. us, yo, no, come clean. <laughs> I'm, this I'm, is not your getting, topic. I'm not getting into it because I may not have paid for all of them, but uh, what? I will say that bobbleheads to me are just so breakable The the head you know it just comes off. And I just, I do have a stubby clap bobblehead uh, that I'd asked for after doing appearances on a Memphis radio station when he was uh, their AAA uh, player at the time. That's how long ago it was. And, and when he didn't get the Cardinals job this week, I was disappointed because I thought that would have boosted the value of the stubby clap bobblehead. <laughs> That's how I think. Mm. I think 10 bucks at a time. That's how I go. I'm going through life here. 10 bucks at a time. I'm, so I'm a sitting head. at
1: my. I'm sitting in my son's bedroom right now. He has a Tanner Roark uh, yeah. signed ball. How much is that worth? Uh,
0: Four dollars. Mm-hmm. Sweet. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I had an, autographs. I think are interesting, but only if they come with an exchange between the person and the, you know, the just the mere act of scribbling, not even looking in the eye. I'm much more into the exchange of. And, and, you know, you can't put a price, things you can't put a price on. Um, but it doesn't seem like that's how people operate. And uh, that's why they have to personalize these things, et cetera. But we, we've gone on long enough on that one. But I just wanted to get, I feel better now that I've said these things. And <laughs> I hope that milestone insurance will become a thing. And I love Tim's idea that that, that's, and uh, also it's fascinating to me that no one out there else that I'm aware of has, would even dare suggest that Tom Brady was being selfish yesterday. Uh, no, he's been he's he gets to he gets to have his cake and eat it too again always. Who wants to go next? Let's stay uh, NFL and let's go with Kimball. Oh no, not NFL football. Yeah, football.
2: So well, I'll I'll give you a little segue here. American sports fans love their memorabilia, but they hate their ties, and that's been well established. And now you know, in so many sports, we have to have. Our overtime rules God forbid a game ends in a tie and this weekend I've, I've started watching a little college football almost just to prepare for for a three-point range because I know you guys are into it and I know it comes up and I know I've got some some uh I've had some uh, predictions there going so I was watching Penn State Illinois that debacle that for those of you who don't follow college football don't realize that I, I believe it was the longest overtime, Uh, college football game in history because it went to what they call nine overtimes, which of course sounds outrageous, but it's really amounts to maybe 20 plays, (laughs) Um, 25 plays at the most. Um, And so I guess in college football now they, they, you know, have the old uh, 25 yard line rule where each team gets the ball from the 25 and that happens twice. And both teams got field goals both times they did that. But then they go to just two point conversions and they alternate two point conversions and see if one team takes the lead on two point conversions. And it was already a pretty, you know, uh, inartistic contest tied at 10 and random regulation. And of course you start adding those field goals and now we're at 16 and neither team was able to score on a two point conversion um, until the eighth try. And then they each scored. And then finally on the ninth try, Penn state failed and Illinois won this game uh, with the two-point conversion, winning 2018. And again, if ever a game deserved to end tie, it was this. I mean, at what point do you say like, no, 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 just call it. You guys have obviously played to a standstill through all this. Neither one of you can score a two-point conversion. You know, it, it's just ridiculous. And there's nothing wrong with the tie, especially when you have such a small arbitrary way of deciding the tie because this had implications, you know, this was a, a big game for Penn State. And for them to lose it was way different than them to win it or to tie it in terms of the national rankings. It'd be interesting. I think they've dropped 13 spots in the national rankings. But I wonder what they would have dropped if, it, if they had won with one of these two-point conversions and, and stopped Illinois. Um, would they not have dropped at all? Would they have gone up? I mean, would they have stayed the same? I mean, it, when, when it's just so ridiculous, a one-play thing – which is just like in some sports, like, oh, why don't we just have, you know, batters take one swing in a home run derby? Or, you know, how about each team shoots a free throw to decide this game? It's, it's, it's so ridiculous. And there's nothing wrong with the game ending and tie, especially when it's just like, look, we obviously played pretty even. And you know what? Maybe Penn State deserves to say, like, yeah, we tied a pretty weak Illinois team and that's going to be on our mark. Instead of maybe they don't deserve the L and they certainly didn't deserve the W. Um, and so, yeah, I think sometimes games need to be tied, especially if we're going to decide them in such a ridiculous fashion. What do you, college football fans, think?
0: <laughs> well, that. Uh,
1: uh, well, go ahead. Tim. Go ahead, Mike. You take this. Well, one.
0: I'll go. I'll be quick on this one. But uh, I like. I miss the tie. I've, I've missed it for a few years now. I miss <laughs> Pat tie, and I miss the talk about the Notre Dame Michigan State famous 10-10 tie in 1966 I mean the Army Notre Dame 0 tie in the 40s those those things ties tend to live forever we don't talk about the eight overtime win it just seems like there's a couple of those every week in a big 12 for now however many there really are there for now um so yeah I, I think the whole thing and of course Tom Osborne going for Two against Miami and the Orange Bowl and not getting it, uh, rather than kicking and taking the tie and the national title. Those are moments that live on forever. And and I, you know that that setup from the 25 is I think the Texas shootout, right? That came from the Texas high school game and and for a while there, I've covered some four over I think an Auburn Georgia four overtime game and it's like wow that's great, but I think the tie has more dignity. Or at least the idea of did you play for the tie? Did you go for the win? Whatever, just more to talk about than what plays were you running there in the in the fifth overtime and and uh, I don't think we'll ever go back because you very rarely turn back the the uh, hands of progress or quote unquote progress. But uh, I'm lamenting the late lost tie, and not just because of that game. It's been a while; it's been a few years I've felt that way. What do you think, Tim?
1: Uh, what it brings up in my mind is. Is how short a memory we have in college football. Um, if we get if if we had gotten to the here's here's why it's important to have a a result in this game, particularly for Penn State. Penn State had one loss going into the game, and uh, anything but winning out the rest of the season, they have no chance to make the college football playoff. They had to win out the rest of the season, and if we if we if we've learned anything from college football, it's that we have short memories. And, and if Penn state had gotten to, uh, you know, 12 and one, having won the, the big 10 conference championship game, we wouldn't remember that they went to nine overtimes with, with Illinois. It would just be a W. We don't remember how the games are won uh, unless we, unless we want, you know, so we conveniently want to remember uh, to, to try to, to try to tear a team down. But that doesn't happen very often. Basically, we just forget. It just becomes a W. And so Penn State has absolutely, they can't afford to have a tie in that game because that, that we do remember. And if they have a loss and a tie, especially a tie against a very weak Illinois team, that's going to scuttle any hope that they possibly have. So uh, I don't know whether, you know, I don't think Illinois wants a tie in that game. I don't think they, if you, if you'd ask both sides uh, as regulation ended, do you want this game to be tied? Neither of them would have wanted that, would have wanted it to be tied. Um, Illinois, just because they, they got nothing to lose. Let's go to overtime, see what happens. This could be the biggest win of Brett Bielema's career at Illinois, young career. And then uh, Penn State can't take a tie because that's basically the the season ender. So uh, while I don't, you know, well, I that was the all of our first experience with the new overtime rules, and and it did look kind of ridiculous to see them taking two point conversions and running down to the other end of the field and taking two point conversions. And I did watch the whole nightmare of it. Um, I, I just think that, yeah, we 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 are as a obviously as a culture. A, Results-oriented ties are not really are not really embraced, and I think in the in the case of these two teams, neither one of them would have wanted a tie. To me, that means that uh, that the game should have been played out. I I don't agree with the the way it was played out. I mean, I think there's got to be a better way than that. Um, I've actually supported the college overtime over the pro overtime just because I still hate the fact that in the NFL you can you can win the you can lose the game without ever without ever possessing the ball. I don't. I think that's flawed too. So I don't know what the answer is, um, well, but I, I, I still think I want it to be played out. But
2: that's the point. Like you know, speaking as a long-suffering Jet fan, we don't always get what we want from sports, and that's the beauty of sports. is <laughs> Games decide themselves in a funny way, and and so at some point, it's like you don't want to tie Penn State. You don't want to tie Illinois. Sorry, that's what you just played to. You know, and that's what you both deserve. Mm-hmm neither one of you deserves a w here mm-hmm. so, and and so I think that's 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 the point you could ask them sure well we want somebody to win you know and they're thinking and hopefully it's me but it's like no you don't deserve mm-hmm. it you, you just don't playing don't deserve it especially <laughs> the way they kept dropping Well, we don't know it. I mean
1: would the with the fourth quarter have played out with the fourth quarter have played out as it did if you don't know that overtime is lur- lurking yeah. uh I mean maybe that game doesn't end at a time I, and certainly there would have been a a certain sense of desperation on the part of Penn state to play, play differently in the fourth quarter, just based on, on that. And maybe that's, maybe that's part of your argument. Maybe that's better. Maybe that's when the game should have been decided before both teams are dragging through their eighth and ninth overtime and just trying to keep stood up. I, I think you could get the Illinois quarterback to agree to, to agree that that would have been better since he ended up <laughs> apparently mangling his left arm and during the overtime period and probably going to be out for the rest of the year for all I know. But uh, yeah, that's, that is one of the risks you take to go nine overtimes. I, I don't think Illinois has got their starting quarterback anymore and they would have, if it had been called a tie.
0: Ties are good. Ties are okay. Sometimes you mentioned, no, sometimes no one deserves to win, but, plenty of times no one deserves to lose and we've covered games like that where it's a just result might have just been a tie and and throughout history there have been those kind of games and again my my larger point is those live on much longer it seems than the uh than the multi-overtime extravaganza just uh they just get (laughs) they just get lost in the in the mind's eye um We're uh, two-thirds of the way through a three-point range. This is episode 47. I double-checked. So uh, milestone coming up soon. We'll be securing insurance for that very soon, <laughs> um, right after the show. But uh, you can uh, check us out at Three-Point Range, the Substack, Three-Point Range, the Facebook page, until they rebrand, right? Well, they're going to go back to the Facebook, aren't they? And then, or we got Three-Point Range. The podcast, uh, which originates at Anchor.fm, and you can find it at Spotify and Google Podcast and Stitcher and all those fine podcast outlets. So to take us home here, we're going to uh, circle back to the professor and some insights that he has on a milestone uh, we can all appreciate.
1: All right, well, I I see your 600... uh... Tom Brady touchdown passes, and I raise you 300 more uh, because Anson Dorrance, the women's soccer coach at the University of North Carolina in the town where I reside, uh, earned his 900th coaching victory, a women's soccer coaching victory, needs to be pointed out, um, on Sunday against Mike's mighty Notre Dame Fighting Irish. um, And in, in... Actually, in typical UNC grind it out, never give up style. Um, the game was 1-0, 1-0, 1-0 Notre Dame uh, until with about a little less than 15 minutes to go, Carolina tied it in, the, uh, in like the 88th minute, I believe, and then won it in double overtime, uh, which is emblematic of, of what this program is all about um, for our listeners who aren't familiar with it. Um, I, I will argue and have argued for about 20 years now that uh, this is the greatest dynasty in the history of sports, certainly the most overlooked dynasty in the history of sports. Um, we are currently in production uh, uh, on a documentary um, that's gonna run on the ACC network and possibly on ESPN um, in the very near future. Um, about Anson Dorrance and what everything that he's done to build this uh, incredible dynasty that uh, has been overlooked to this point. And we'll finally start to get a little bit, bit of publicity, I guess, through this, through this documentary. Uh, I tried to write a book about it, shameless plug and, uh, and failed to put it on the, put it on the national radar. I would say um, it's certainly, it's certainly uh Known in in certain circles, but not. Uh, I would would not say that it's been uh, discovered nationally yet. So we'll see. We're still waiting for that to, that to occur. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess when I talk, when I think about nine hundred victories, I have certainly paid a lot more attention to soccer since I first met Anson Dorrance in in, uh, in the mid '80s as a student here at UNC, and then first started working on the book with him in two thousand and one. And if there's one thing that I've learned about soccer since then, which I'd never really paid very close attention to until 2001, is that uh, there are very few sports that it's harder to win. Um, and there are, very, there, uh, there are very few sports where there is less justice. Uh, the, in the amount of times that I've seen Carolina put together 25 shots against an, a, a, an opponent who had one shot and Carolina lost the game, um, is more than you would imagine. Um, imagine trying to trying to carry that to another sport. Um, how many in how many other sports would one team get twenty five shots and the other team won and the team with twenty five shots lose? Well, that happens way more often than you would would imagine in uh, in soccer. People who know soccer well certainly know that to be the case. But uh, it is a sport. Built on so much injustice in terms of of the team we talk about teams deserving to win, uh, this would be uh, this would be a case of, of um, if Carolina won every game that they deserved to win during Anson Dorrance's time, he'd have another 30-40 oh, wins. He's only lost I don't know um, uh, something like a hundred games in uh, in his entire time here and. At least half of those, if not more, um, would have been wins if the if the uh, if the gods of soccer had shined justly on uh, on Carolina that day. So um, I guess I say that to say that 900 wins is extraordinary, uh, amazing. The next most by anybody in in uh, women's college soccer is Jerry Smith out at Santa Clara. He's got about 500 wins. So the the gap between them. Is great. Obviously, um, the gap between Carolina's national championships, twenty-two, and the next most by any other team would be three, um, is even more stark. And I just think that, that um, what what uh, Dorrance has done here is um, is one of the most extraordinary feats in all of collegiate sports history. And I'm not, i don't mean just soccer history; I mean collegiate sports history and uh very few people know about what what's happened and uh it's funny i mean i i live in chapel hill work on this work on this campus and i am constantly amazed to walk around and realize that uh there's a there there's a large percentage of students on the unc campus who have no idea that uh, this dynasty (laughs) lives in their midst um you know we're a basketball school whether you're whether you Believe Dean um, Smith saying that once saying that it was a UNC women that UNC was a women's soccer school. Uh, don't believe it. It's a basketball school. And um, what UNC has done uh, is one of the great untold stories in American sports. And I so, felt like at at this point we should share that since we reached a milestone this week.
2: Uh, I do think it's obviously incredibly impressive. I, I think we were all. I believe all around him at one time, and I actually was in his circle, you know, around him. I should say a, a lot when I was an undergrad, and I was a writer. and And uh, my my uh, roommate happened to be on the men's team when he still coached the men's team and coached both at the same time, which is always an interesting feat. Um, and I encourage you. I I've read Tim Crowther's book on Anson, and it's it's quite good. And it it I think it shows a lot of sides of this fascinating man. I would also encourage people to go and read another guy that went to UNC with us. S.L. Price wrote uh, sort of um, uh, at least one great article about Anson and Sports Illustrated. And, you know, I will touch on it. You know, he obviously had he had some controversy where, you know, he was accused of, you know, some inappropriate um, interaction with some of his female players. And I will just comment on that because I've really had a gut feeling on that. I, I really, you know, no one may ever know what really went on there. But Anson talked a lot about – he had theories about the difference in motivating and coaching, you know, young men as opposed to young women, and he was well-qualified to have these theories because he was doing both at the same time, coaching those, both those teams. And and anyone that's ever coached, I think there's some brilliant uh, theories there. And and he really thought, like, you know and, – and Tim could come, probably comment on this better, but, like, um, you know, he felt that young women athletes especially felt – if if you encouraged them by telling them how much you cared about them, they would they would give you more. Whereas maybe you know guys, you know took to the stick better. And and um, and I my gut feeling is he just he just went so far with that in terms of writing letters of love and stuff like that. That that you know and trying to push that and and that is you know I'm just going to throw it out there as my two cents and my guts. But he was a master manipulator, um, and. and and coach. And I will tell my one little Anson Dorrance story. And that is that when I did cover the team, they were going for one of their titles and, you know, if memory serves me, so it's early eighties and I forget which one. And I forget if it was the semifinal game, but I had to write a fairly innocuous preview about this upcoming game. And I got Anson on the phone and he just threw out these outrageous quotes to me, which I believe the the, the one of the more outrageous ones, cause I said, well, you know, it looked like they were going to beat this team pretty easily, even though it was like the semis. And he said, I said, well, he said something like, the only way we'll lose is if 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 the field gets napalmed or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, what? You're really saying this? And so I ran with these quotes about how he's really confident that that there was no way his team could lose that day. And then because I was around a lot of these players at the time, it came back to me like, you know, women from that team like, why did you write those things that were untrue? And I said, what are you talking about? I said, like, Anson said he never said those things. You just wrote them. And I'm like, well, that is not true. (laughs) He might say that. But I think he was honestly playing me and using an edge because he thought his kids would be complacent. And he said to them, oh, we've got such a tough game now because, you know, these quotes are out there and and that team's going to be fired up. You better go out there and play the game of your life. And of course, they did and they did and they won. And I've never really you know, confirm that with him and like, see if I got played. But uh, that uh, he he was capable of playing a lot of uh, little different manipulation, motivation, mind tricks.
0: He never, uh, he never brought it up with you. You never brought it up with him afterwards. You never <laughs> did figure out if the genesis of that or what? Nope. So if he, if he didn't confront you, then he wasn't misquoted and he was playing you. I, that would be my read on it. If he didn't confront you uh, then, you know, demand a retraction, then he just played the media beautifully. I the thing <laughs> that sticks with me all these years later, and I was only around him a little bit. I did have to write it from the Daily Tario perspective when he was about to give up the men's team and it, it was at the final year of him coaching both. And I remember interviewing a number of the men's players who were talking about they they felt they were getting a short uh, shrift on that, not enough attention. They were a little whiny. But they ended up going to the Final Four, I believe, that year. And Anson was very good about it, very you know, straightforward about it, and admitted that maybe it was too much to, to, to split the uh, difference and, and attempt to, to, to do that when he had this dynasty on one side and this uh, team that was generally disappointing on the other. And he did, I guess, uh, step down after that season. I have no idea um, what the impact of of those quotes going public from all the players. I forget even how it – bubbled to the surface like that, but I ended up writing it, and um, that's pretty much it. And later on, came across him a little bit, and nothing like Tim. Tim's book is outstanding. I I uh, love that book, and I can't believe it's been 20 years, and that should be more than a documentary. I felt from the time I read it, that's a movie. That's a movie waiting to happen, and I hope you have the movie rights and hold on to them. I can't believe Anson's 70. I can't believe mm-hmm. that. He'll always be a boyish whatever. And he's a, I guarantee you, he's a boyish 70. Mm -hmm. Um, and is he the most significant sports figure, including cricket stars ever born in India? (laughs) What do you think? You throw All the great cricket stars, all the bowlers that you can come up with. I, I'm going Anson on that. And I'll just finish with, we all remember our, our great freelance friend, Jim Furlong from the, uh, triangle area and Jim would uh, work for any ent- uh, any uh outlet that would have him and g- generally worked with the Durham Herald Sun that was uh, that's how he paid that's how he paid the freight um and he and he knew early on that Anson was gold you could go to him and he, and as Kimball mentioned he'd he'd give you what you needed he, he knew how to get headlines because he had to he had to be interesting he didn't he couldn't just be boring because he was already obviously we've proven he ended up being lost in the shuffle somehow. But Jim Furlong would say, and it became a running joke, but he he was overheard saying multiple times after a game. He had no question for Anson. He would just say, okay, Anson, give me a best quote. And he would, <laughs> on command. He would. And it was, I don't know anybody else, in, a, in anybody else I've come across in sports all these years, who could do that, who could turn it on, who you could say that to and wouldn't say, get out of my face. Or whatever. He, would, he would pause. And then he would deliver gold, so that's that's one of the other things that makes him uh, an all timer. So congratulations, to Anson Dorrance. and uh, go by Tim's. Book.
1: Let me wrap it up with a story about Matt about about uh, Anson and the media um, that is talks that addresses this idea of manipulation. And yes, he has always enjoyed uh, using the media to his to his uh, to his. Team's uh, motivational um, best, and that is, you know, he he will talk to the media and say and plant things in stories um, that he knows are are there just to motivate his kids or his student, his players, obviously. But um, but my favorite Anson story clearly is uh, being. I was you know was lucky enough to be in many pregame uh, meetings during my time. Uh, covering the team I covered the team very very closely almost embedded for several years there and uh, and one one particular game where he wanted to really get the team fired up he he um, he read from a a newspaper article I think it was a I think it was a game against Virginia he he's he was reading quotes from a newspaper story um, from the Virginia players that were just incredibly caustic and incredibly um, just belittling of Carolina's program, and the players were just were just foaming at the mouth by the time he got done with this, and uh, the players ran out ran out of the locker room as if they'd been you know, ready to run through a brick wall. And Anson strolled out of the locker room onto the field, and I went over and looked at the looked at the story that he was reading from. It was a blank piece of paper. Wow. <laughs> he made it all up on the spot.
0: Oh, my word. <laughs> he didn't even have to type it out. That's, 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 that's brilliance right there. Yep. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, uh, this has been Three Point Range, another fun show. We'll see you next time. For Tim Crothers, the professor for Kimball Crosley, the scout, this is Mike Bernardino. Thanks for listening.